Good morning. Hello. Hi everyone. Welcome to this seminar on the theme of evangelism. My name is Rob. I lead a church in Attleborough called Cross Community Church. I have one wife called Christine. I have three children called Fear, Sebastian and Tia. And I also help something called the Who Cares Mission. And it's my job to talk to you today about um, evangelism. Um, let me just say a little bit by way of introduction, tell you my story of how I came to know Jesus Christ. Um, so I was a full-on church kid. I was um, brought up by Christian parents. My dad was an elder in a Baptist church. And I was taken to church twice on a Sunday. Um, but actually from quite a young age, I became really quite sceptical of Christianity, and I kind of harboured these unspoken doubts and questions about the things that I was hearing in church. But I also thought that Christianity was really lame, really embarrassing, and I did not want to be known of as a Christian. And I remember at school in RE lessons when they would ask people, will you put up your hand if you, if you go to church? And I remember in those moments wanting to die and I'd, either, I'd go bright red, and I'd either go bright red and put up my hand, or go bright red and not put up my hand and feel terrible for lying. And um, something changed in my early teens. I was invited by my parents to a Christian camp where they had a speaker who actually is the son of the first Doctor Who, strange enough, called Mark Troughton. And he did a series of talks on the evidence for the Christian faith. Now, I've never heard anyone speak on this before, and I was captivated. Um, but by the end of the week, I was extremely annoyed because I've come to the conclusion that Christianity was true. And I thought, well, this is terrible because it's still really embarrassing. <laughs> and so I basically decided that even though I knew that it was true, I did not want to become a Christian. So I had this kind of strange period of knowing it was true, but just not wanting to become a Christian. And at this time, church meetings just became incredibly uncomfortable. I remember the worship, the songs used to get me, and I'd want to sing them, but then think, no, I can't sing them because I'm not a Christian yet. I've decided not to be a Christian. And um, I remember preaching, even if it was terrible, would convict me by the Holy Spirit. It could be, it could be the most boring sermon. If they just talked about Jesus, I would feel like I need to respond to this. And so I had about a year of agony, and it, things came to a head when my brother got baptised. And I remember when I found out, I was thought, oh, this is terrible. This means he's a Christian, which means I want to think about it again. And I remember going to the church service where my brother was getting baptised. Now, I went to a Baptist church where this wasn't very normal. I started to shake during one of the worship songs. In fact, it was quite embarrassing because I was holding the hymn sheet that I was sharing with my brother's non-Christian friend, and I was shaking so much that he had to take the hymn sheet from me, and I went bright red, and I thought, what's going wrong with me? And I remember getting out of that meeting thinking, phew, I'm still not a Christian. And then we had, the next day, an afternoon praise party in someone's house, and I thought, well, this is terrible. It's a whole afternoon of worship. And do you know what it was? The worship songs were really good. It was awful. You know, I was wanting to join in and not wanting to join in. And then we sung this worship song, and the words of it, it's not a song that I've actually heard, I don't think, in any other church ever sung. But the words of this worship song were, I don't know why, I can't see how, your precious blood could cleanse me now, and all this time I've lived a lie with no excuse, no alibi. 
All I know is I find mercy. All my shame you take from me. All I know your cross has power and the blood you shed cleanses me. And it was like those words were like the final wound. I thought, I've got no excuse. I've got no alibi. I know this is true. And so I went home and I didn't pray the prayer that, that, that you get taught to pray at the end of the Why Jesus booklet by Nicky Gumbel. I just went home and basically said, God, I give in. I'm, I'm done trying to stop being a Christian. Um, so that's, that was my journey of how I came to faith. But I've also been on a journey about, of, of learning about evangelism, about sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And I think for me, I quite quickly went from really not keen and embarrassed of Christianity to really keen on everyone that I've ever known becoming a Christian. I'd also never seen someone become a Christian before. Like, I've never seen anyone in my church. I just thought the whole idea of someone becoming a Christian would just sounded so exciting. I've, I've read about it in some books, but for me it was sort of miles away. But I became really quite, quite desperate for people to know Jesus Christ. And I've had a number of experiences over my life that have really spoken to me and taught me um, about more, I learned more about evangelism. And I just want to tell you one of those stories that was a big one, a big moment for me. So Steph Liston had asked me to do, to speak to a group of leaders on the subject of evangelism. And I was feeling like a bit of a fraud because I hadn't really told anyone about Jesus for quite a while. So that morning when I got up, I realized this issue and I said to the Lord, Lord, um, I'm feeling like a bit of a fraud because I've been asked to do this talk on evangelism and I haven't really spoken to anyone about you recently. So could you line something up today so that when I speak to the leaders tonight, I won't feel like so much of a fraud? So I prayed that in the morning and then I did what I often do, which is I go to a cafe in my town, a nice greasy spoon where they do fried bread. You know what I mean. And, um, and I went there and I... And I and I, would, and, and I sat down and I had my Bible and a pen and a bit of paper and I sat down and I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, there was, there was a lady sitting in the corner of the room, I felt the Holy Spirit say, well there you go, talk to her. And I said something like, Lord I'm not feeling it anymore. <laughs> so I then sat down at my table and started to read the Bible and make notes. Um, now. The Bible isn't really a safe place to hide when you're resisting the promptings of the Holy Spirit. So after like an hour of agonizing Bible reading, I shut the Bible and I said, well, Lord, okay, I will speak to her, but what do I say? And I felt the Holy Spirit say, just say hello. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, I can do that. So I looked up from my Bible and my pen and said, hello. And the woman in the corner of the room said, hello, are you a Christian? Is that a Bible? And I said, yes. And she said, I've never met a Christian before. And I said, you've never met a Christian before? She said, no. She said, in my school, I don't remember meeting anyone who's a Christian. None of my family are Christian. And now I've got a job. None of the people I work with are Christian. Maybe if I met a Christian, I'd be a Christian. <laughs> All right. So, um, I guess you don't know much about Christianity then? No. Well, I don't know any Christians. How would I? Well, like, do, do you want to know what it's all about? Yeah, I'd love to know. Well, do you want to come and sit at my table and maybe we could, I can kind of give you a bit of an overview? Yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> so she sat at my table 
and I explained. I Should I start at the beginning then? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> so I did. And we talked for about an hour. At one point, I suddenly thought, she needs to know that church is a place that's right for her to go now. She doesn't have to wait to become a Christian before she can find out more from a, from a church. So I said to her, look, you should know there's someone in our church right now, um, and he's about your age, and he's, um, well, he said to me last week that he's 40% a Christian, and he comes to our church. And she went, oh, 40%. Well, before I met you, I was 0%. But now I've met you, I'm at least 5%, and maybe 10%. <laughs> and that experience just, well, really impacted me because it made me think, well, how many people are there out there like her? Probably a lot more people than sometimes we realise. And we all know that we should tell people about Jesus, so I'm not going to talk about why. I'm going to assume that you know that we should. Um, there are actually a lot of reasons for why we should, and it is healthy, actually, to look at all the reasons in Scripture, because they're more broad than you realise. Um, but I'm not going to go there. Um, but we're going to talk about evangelism. Really, I've got three parts to my seminar today. I want to make, um, before we get more practical, I want to make nine observations about evangelism in the book of Acts. Then I want to look at seven principles for everyday evangelism on a personal basis. And then I want to talk about, at the end, five unique opportunities that I think we have regarding evangelism in the modern age. So that's the structure for today. It will be a lot of points, so if you're taking notes, you'll, you'll enjoy it. Okay, but before we, before we dive in, shall we just answer this basic question? What is evangelism? Well, I would say evangelism is proclaiming the good news of the gospel. It's a distinct activity from social action or good works, although they are interrelated and have an important relationship with evangelism. So evangelism therefore does require words. You're not sharing the gospel until you're sharing the gospel. It's not to say that the other things aren't very important, and I'm going to talk about some of the other things and how they interact with evangelism, but they're not actually the act of evangelism. They're something different that needs to work together with it. So there we are. Um, my, so let's start then with nine observations about evangelism in the book of Acts. Let's just lay a bit of a biblical foundation before we rush into talking about how do we actually do it. So I counted that there are 37 instances of evangelism described in the book of Acts. Now we value, don't we, being New Testament patterned churches. And so for us, this isn't just interesting history, but we should expect that a study of those encounters should be instructive. And so I want to give you nine observations about evangelism from the book of Acts, and I will give a little bit of application as we go, because it's, it's pretty obvious. So number one, first observation about evangelism in the book of Acts, they went to the people. In a number of cases, the believers or the apostles go to where the people are with a clear intention of sharing the gospel. They went to the synagogue in Acts 12, 13, 14, and 17. They go to the place of prayer in Acts 16. They go from home to home in Acts 5. And they go to the marketplace in Acts 17. Simple point, but we need to keep finding ways of getting the message to where the people are. We go to them. 
we find the places where they're discussing, where they're debating, we go to the places where people are listening to content or information, we, we, we find ways to get the people, to the gospel to the people, we don't expect them to just simply always come to us. One of the things in our church that we do and we really enjoy doing is we just, on a Friday night, we just take hot chocolates and we go around the streets of our town and we talk to the young people of Ackleborough and we share the gospel with them. We, we go to where they're at. It's not hard to have a conversation with a young person about Jesus Christ. I mean, we give them the hot chocolate. The other, I did it like last week. And, we, as I, and what I like to do, I'm just cheeky. So I just say, oh, this hot chocolate's from Jesus. That's enough to start a discussion with a young person about who is Jesus, why are you doing this? Um, we sat down with a group of teenage girls last Friday and we gave them hot chocolates and they said, why are we doing this? And we said, well, it's because we believe that God loves all people and we want to share that love with the world. I mean, you know, it, it's, not, it's not rocket science. And then we chatted for about two hours about who Jesus Christ was, um, why he died, um, the love of our Father in heaven for us. We need to go. We need to keep finding ways where we go to where the people are. That's our New Testament precedent. Point number two, the people came to them. In a number of instances, unbelievers seek out the disciples and the apostles and invite them to come and speak. So in Acts 17 and in Acts 24, and a number of times uh, a crowd gathers around them. That happens in Acts 3 and in other places. So there has to be, that, that, that should be then also our expectation that we expect that people will come to us, that we're willing to people to invite us. And one of the things that I often pray, and I began telling a story about this, is just say, God, I'm gonna be at this place at this time. I'm available. If you want to send anyone my way, to speak about you, I'd love to do that. And I'm just letting you know, Lord, I'm available. So you can send people our way. We see that happen in our church building. We say, Lord, send us people. And sometimes random people come up because they want to use the toilet and we end up giving them a drink and then we end up telling them about Jesus. So we should expect that also God will send the people to us. Third observation, the apostles had an important role. Acts as a history focuses on the story of the apostles, it's the Acts of the Apostles, and in 29 out of the 37 instances of evangelism, they are involved. They clearly pioneer evangelistic activity in a number of areas. So this reminds us that there is definitely a place for key people and ministries and leaders pioneering evangelistic advance. There's definitely a precedent for getting someone apostolic to come in and lead you in evangelistic advance. There's definitely a New Testament precedent for getting a gifted evangelist to come and preach the gospel in our churches. Fourth observation about evangelism in the book of Acts, the other believers have an important role. Acts 8 verse 4 reveals that the gospel actually first spread into new areas, um, not because the apostles were going courageously forward in evangelistic advance, but there was persecution, and basically the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but it was the believers who, wherever they went, that's what the Acts 8 verse 4 says, wherever they went, they told people about Jesus Christ. Um, you get this sense in Acts at the early part that the apostles really are running to catch up with what God is doing through the ordinary believers who've heard about Jesus Christ and are just telling people wherever they go. So there is clear encouragement there 
to everyone a witness type initiatives and to encouraging the whole church to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Fifth observation about evangelism in the book of Acts, signs and wonders played an important supporting role. A number of the evangelistic opportunities come about because an of, of and they come about because of an extraordinary healing, or afterward there is some clear sort of sign of wonder. So, um, in Acts three, in Acts five, in Acts six, in Acts fourteen, and the last chapter of Acts tells the story of you know the whole island of Malta being healed. Um, there's there's a common theme that. Uh, these signs and wonders lead to evangelistic opportunities or come after them to support them. And so we need to be pursuing and making available opportunity for God to move in miraculous ways to attest to the truthfulness of the gospel. Um, I remember once going to this same cafe and saying, um, God, I'm available to tell people about you. And um, I was sat um, on a on a bench reading books all about healing funnily enough that day and um, a number of other ladies came to sit on the same bench with me and by this point I actually did, I wasn't really that available anymore because I was really getting into my books and I didn't really want to be distracted so I'd sort of forgotten that I'd asked God to send me people <laughs> and these three people clearly wanted to have a conversation with me so I shut my book and I said hello and they said oh what are you reading and I said oh I'm, I'm reading about healing and I'm, I lead a church and preparing to do a talk and, and then one of them said immediately oh, I can never believe in God I can't believe in things that I can't see and I thought oh right okay so I said to her well if you were walking down the street and surrounded by a bright white shining light and heard a voice saying this is God believe in me would you believe in God then to which she said yeah and I said, well, so you are open-minded. I said, would you believe in God if I prayed for one of you today and you were sick and you got healed, would you believe in God then? And rather than answering that question, one of them said, the other one said, well, you can pray for me, boy. <laughs> so I said, well, what, what do you want me to pray for? And she said, my back is terrible. I'm in terrible pain. And I, so I did what Angela Kim tells us to do, and Mike tells us to do, saying, how much pain are you on a scale of one to 10? So I said, how much pain are you on a scale of one to 10? And she said, 10. She started to well up, and I was like, "Well, that's that's a lot of pain." And she nodded. So by this time, it was quite a full cafe, and everyone had started to get quiet because they could tell something was going down on this table. <laughs> so I said, as so I put my hand, I said, "Can I hold your hand?" I held her hand. I said, "In the name of Jesus, I command this back to be healed." At which point, she looked a bit surprised, and um, she said, "It's gone." And I said, what do you mean it's gone? She said, the pain. And I said, well, how much pain are you in? And I said, one to ten. She said, zero. And I said, really? Zero? <laughs> she was like, yeah. And I was like, wow. And, um, and then at this point, the other lady on the other side said, well, you can pray for me as well, boy. <laughs> so I prayed for her, and uh, hers was a bit different, but she also experienced something when I prayed for her. And then after that, I turned to the lady who actually asked the question. I said, well, there you go. <laughs> and I said to her, look, I, you know, there's a story in the Bible. You've probably not heard of it, but it's called the Ten Lepers. Have you heard of that? She said, no. I said, that basically, Jesus heals ten lepers, but only one of them comes back to thank him. You know, Jesus is, I believe Jesus is healed today, but it's up to you whether you go back to find out more about the one who healed you. Um, you can go on your way. You're free. But if you want to find out, no, you, we can tell you more. 
So signs and wonders play an important role in, in a support and supporting role in evangelism. Persecution, point number six, also played an important role. It was persecution, remember, that made the disciples leave Jerusalem. And it was persecution that took Paul before various rulers and courts where he was able to very boldly share the gospel. And Paul in Philippians 1 verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So there's a clear precedent for persecution actually being a, a support to our evangelistic endeavours. Number seven, sometimes people responded very quickly. There are many examples in Acts of immediate gospel responses or immediate baptisms. So most notably Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, and Acts chapter 16. And we still should expect that on occasion that will happen today, whether someone is just ready. God's already done a lot, and we come along, and they're ready to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not normally that they don't know anything, and they're coming from zero. It's just that God's already done quite a lot to get them to, you know, just ready to go. So um, I remember when I was away at um, speaking at another church, and my wife and um, someone from our, so one of our sort of year out people was doing street work, and they were just sharing the gospel with people, and they ended up sharing the gospel with a guy on the streets of Attleborough who had Parkinson's and was in a wheelchair um, called Mark. And he had, he was actually happened to bump into about three people over like a month period where they just shared the gospel with him. And the third time he was invited to our church, he came. The first Sunday he came, God just sort of went zap. And you've probably seen these moments where it's just like God seems to just go boom. And he was just ready. He, he was experiencing the love of Jesus in the worship. He was crying. And so my wife led him just in a simple response to the message. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ on the very first Sunday that he came to our church. And he's come almost every other Sunday since. Um, he's just got this love for Jesus that's just sort of bursted out of him. So we can expect that sometimes people will respond very quickly. Point number eight Sometimes people responded slowly. While Paul spent some days in places, he spent two years debating in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And we read about the Bereans in Acts 17, who kind of take a slow approach of going back and checking everything that Paul is saying um, every day. And I think this is probably more common now that we see people who go on a journey and it's really quite slow. I mean, you're probably resonate with this. We've got a number of people in our churches that tend to do about three hour courses now before they really come to a point of um, making much decision um, or making a church choice to even get to know Jesus better. They're just sort of happy to just keep going. So we've got a lady in our church called Claire and she's the um, mum of someone in our church and she was she got involved in our church through this thing called Who Cares where we asked this big survey what hurts the most of our community. And her daughter asked her the question, what hurts you the most? And she wrote down, I think on her card, loneliness. Um, we then did a series of activities and preaches responding to those results. And we did a series actually on relationships. And she came to that. And basically, she didn't really respond. She just came on a Sunday and then came every single Sunday since, um, other than when she was on holiday. 
and she just came and she asked question after question of her daughter and other people in the church. She grilled people, she asked questions, and she just kept coming. And after about three years, we got a bit suspicious that something maybe had gone on. She also looked like she was enjoying the worship a little bit too much, somebody who's not Christian. So eventually I met her and I said, so Claire, I'm just sort of wondering, you know, like where you're at with all the kind of Jesus stuff in at the minute. And she, she, she started to cry and just said, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Um, unprompted. And I said, Claire, that's wonderful. How long? And she said, it's been two weeks. So she's been on church for about three years. Took time. I, I just had a text last week from a guy who's done three Alpha courses with us and two one-to-one Bible studies with people in our church who's about 23. And um, he just texted me the other day to say, I, I would like to get baptised. Um, can I meet you for coffee? So it just sometimes it just takes time. We shouldn't be surprised at this. It's got New Testament precedent. And finally, number nine, church planting was a central part of the apostles' evangelistic strategy. Um, we should just remember that evangelism, of course, is one spiritual gift, um, which is often the start. It's often like the thin end of the wedge through which all the other spiritual gifts need to come into action. And it's interconnected to all the others. So evangelism often is just the first spiritual gift that's used. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes there's almost like a pastoral gift. Um, and then the other ministries and gifts of the Holy Spirit are needed just to disciple one convert. You know, you, after conversion, they need teaching. After they respond to the gospel, they need pastoral care. They might need service. They need prayer. They might need pra- practical support. Um, evangelism is, is often the start that then leads to all the other gifts of the Holy Spirit needed. So therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that the evangelistic strategy of the New Testament is church planting, creating communities that are able to provide all the spiritual gifts for people to come to maturity in Christ. So there we are. There we are. Just to lay, a fa- I just wanted to lay a foundation, really, before we rush into talking about all the practical stuff. Um, a foundation on what do we actually see as the New Testament pattern regarding evangelism. So let's move on to part two, which I want to share with you seven principles for sharing your faith. So these are a little bit more personal, um, talking a little bit more about personal evangelism, but have wider implications for the church as well. So number one, enjoy the gospel and Jesus for yourself. When you enjoy something or are amazed by something, you can't stop talking about it. Now, I am an evangelist for films that I really like. I remember when I saw the film Interstellar, I just thought it was the best film ever. Not that many people agree with me. It's a bit of a Marmite film. But I just started telling people, I think I told someone on a bus, I just said, have you seen it? No, I didn't get paid permission to tell people about this film. I just really liked it. I was excited about it. And it's the same with evangelism. There's a sense of if you really, really love Jesus and think he's amazing, evangelism is very intuitive. Um, The disciple Andrew does this, this kind of intuitive response. In John 1, verse 41, it says, the first thing that Andrew did was find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Jesus. It's just, uh, and you can sense the energy. He's excited about who he's seen. He's not even told, no one had to train him to do evangelism. He was just amazed at who Jesus was and couldn't help talking about him. So telling other people about Jesus 
has to start by being amazed at him for yourself. I discovered in my early teens, after I'd become a Christian, the sheer delight and joy of praising Jesus. I remember I would go into my bedroom and I would shut the door and I would put on a worship CD and I would mouth along to the words and put my hands in the air. I didn't want my parents to hear me. And I just experienced in that bedroom a joy and a wonder in the presence of Jesus that I knew was better than anything I'd ever experienced before, but I also knew it was kind of better than anything else that I could ever experience. I just knew it was the best. When you've experienced the best, you know it's the best. You know this is, there's something about this that nothing else is ever going to be able to touch. And I remember enjoying Jesus and knowing that I'm loved by my Father in heaven. But then I realised, suddenly the thought comes, but hang on a minute, my friends, they don't know, they're not, they've not experienced what I'm experiencing right now. They've never known anything like this. I've got to tell them. So it's simple. We share Jesus because we think it's, he's great. It all starts by enjoying him for yourself and knowing his love for you. Um, Rick Warren, I love this quote, says this. This is the starting point of every ministry, to feel loved by God. Not to know it, but to feel it. That is the starting point of every renewal, every great awakening, every revival. A miserable Christian really is a terrible evangelist. I mean, you might know people who are miserable Christians, but do evangelism, and it's bad. It's not good. It all starts with enjoying Jesus for yourself. That's point number one. Point number two, notice we're not really talking about evangelism yet, we're talking about pre-evangelism. Number two, love the people in front of you. You know, your life is the best recommendation for the Christian faith. And when people become Christians, they should become more loving sons to their parents, better spouses, and more diligent employees. Becoming a Christian is not a moment for us to become all obnoxious and annoying to the people that we're in close contact with. They should actually gain a clear benefit from us becoming Christians. You know, what is Peter's advice to wives with non-Christian husbands? Submit yourselves to your husbands so that any of them do not believe the word. They may be won over without words by the behaviour of the wives, or their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. You know, where's the added benefit that people are getting from your Christianity? There should be one. You know, we're called to be generous. You know, the, the, the people in restaurants should be benefiting who work there because of our tips are bigger. There should be a benefit to our Christianity, to the people around us. And we had a lady in our church who became a Christian, and one of the most dramatic changes that happened to her was that she stopped becoming a critical person. She was a nagging wife. When she became a Christian, she experienced the love of God, and she just stopped being like that. What a great witness to the gospel. Her husband clearly got a benefit from her Christianity. What benefit are people gaining from you being a Christian? Your neighbours, your friends, your co-workers, your parents. What benefit are they getting from your Christianity? There should be one. And what a great recommendation for the Christian faith. Just a, a loving person full of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Okay. It's point number three. 
Um, graciously listen to the people around you. Most people aren't ready to listen until they've been heard. Some people are, but most people want to be heard first. So I would say, why don't you ask people what they believe and be fascinated and genuinely interested by what they have to say? You know, it is really interesting to find out what people think these days. Please don't try and tear down their beliefs and be confrontational. Draw them out, show them respect. You know, there are two passages in, in the epistles that specifically address conversations with people outside of the church. Um, in 1 Peter and Colossians, what do they say? Do this with gentleness and respect. Let your conversation always be full of grace. How you listen and how you talk is very, very important. The focus shouldn't be on winning an argument or making a point or saying the clinching thing that's going to suddenly make them a Christian, but on being gracious and respectful. So questions that I love asking people are questions like, do you have a faith at all? See what they say. And then pull the thread of whatever they say. Just keep, keep drawing out. Keep getting them to expand on it, explain it. Um, listen. Um, what, or asking people, for you, like, what's the most important thing in your life? What matters to you more than anything else? And then just draw out why they feel that way. Like, listen, be interested. And I would say dignify even the most critical of comments. You know, the classic things to say are like, well, that, that's really interesting. Because it is. It should be really interesting. If you're not interested, then there's something wrong. So I'm just saying, I think you're, I think, you know what, I think a lot of people think, feel like that. Simply listening causes people to reflect, and often that can start a journey towards Jesus Christ. So we've got a guy in our church called James who got saved in another relational mission church, and the way he's described it to us is that someone in that church said to him, James, um, I, he was a very kind of like analytical, sort of philosophical person who'd really studied um, and thought and, and had a lot of questions, like very thoughtful person, and he and, and he was asked, could you? Just, could you explain, let's do an exercise. Why don't you write on one page of A4 why you believe, what you believe and why you believe it, and I'll do the same for Christian, for my beliefs, and why don't we swap? Simply being asked to do that exercise convicted him that what he thought he believed had no basis, and he didn't really know why it was true, and that, for him, that was like a turning point in his journey. Actually being listened to, actually being asked, why do you believe what you believe? Fourth, um, sort of tip building toward evangelism is offering prayer tying in really with one of our points you know Jesus preached the gospel but he also healed the sick didn't he they went side by side he fed the hungry he delivered people from oppression healing and evangelism go together um, now of course preaching and teaching was clearly Jesus's primary ministry he actually says that in Mark 1 verse 38 he says of, of preaching that is why I have come so we need to hold that and remember that's really important preaching was central to the ministry of Jesus and to the ministry of the disciples however Jesus also said to his followers in Mark 16 didn't he preach the gospel and these signs will accompany those who believe they will place their hands on people who are ill and they will get well so he starts with the proclamation of the word, but recognising that this needs to come alongside evangelism. 
And one of the phrases that Jesus said a couple of times was, what do you want me to do for you? And I think it's Angela that often speaks about this and says that to people. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And when she said that, I thought that's so helpful and clarifying to say to people, what do you want Jesus to do for you? I mean, some people have, most people have never been asked that question. And I have seen far more success in my experience in prayer for healing for those outside of the church and those, than those inside the church. And I've spoken to two other evangelists about this, and they say exactly the same experience as theirs. In fact, I was having, I had a conversation with this, with a, with this about Adrian Holloway, and you know, we, we don't know for sure, but one of the functions of healing is that it's a sign that attests to the truth of the gospel. So clearly, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of an added dimension to praying for the sick when they're unbelievers, because it's functioning as a sign to those who don't yet believe the gospel. And I would just say persevere. You know, don't worry what people will think. Don't, don't freak out and think what will happen if they're not healed. Will they turn away from Jesus forever? Um, Jesus says pray for the sick and lay hands on them, so we do it. And of course, you can reassure people and say, look, not everyone gets healed, but some people do. And if God hasn't healed you, um, then that never means that he doesn't love you. And in my experience, actually, um, a lot of people are just really blessed that you've offered to pray for them, even if they haven't been healed. The vast majority of people you pray for who don't get healed still cry or experience something, or God, even even the experience of just being ministered to that way is so new for them, so powerful. That's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, I remember once going to um, going out on the streets again on our, fr- on our Friday nights talking to young people and there was a guy there who really wanted to speak to me. He knew that I was going to be doing it and so some people in the team had lined him up to have a conversation with me because he just read the book The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins and he wanted to tell me why he wasn't a Christian and why God didn't exist. So I was like, great. So I went to see him and I said, I, I, I gather you wanted to have a chat and he, and he, and he recounted to me why, you know, why he wasn't a Christian, why God didn't exist. And I thought, well, I'll just say a few things, you know, after he'd said his bit in response to some of the things that he'd said. And I realized as soon as I said, a, even a drop of almost like a counter way of looking at things, I could see his mind whirring and thinking, oh, he uh, uh, was reacting like somebody who hadn't heard what I was saying before. And then I did what well, I did, the same thing. You'll notice I have a few stock phrases. I said to him, are you open-minded? And he couldn't really answer that question. I said, you know, if you were surrounded by a bright white shining light and heard a voice saying, this is God believe in me, would you believe in God then? And he said, yeah, I think I would. And then I said to him, the same question, would you believe in God if you were sick and you'd come here today and I prayed with you and you were healed? And he didn't answer that question. He said, there is something that you can pray for me about. And at that point I thought, wow, we've gone, we've gone a long way in 15 minutes from you telling me why God doesn't exist and now I'm praying for you to be healed. So I asked him what I could pray for him about. And he said, I have massive problems with anxiety. Um, I had, we had a bereavement recently in my family. Someone broke up with me. I'm having panic attacks all the time and I'm seeing a counselor and I'm on drugs. Please would you pray for me? So I prayed for him there on this Friday night, on a, on a, sat on a car park gravel. And as soon as he opened his eyes after I finished praying, I could see that something had happened to him. He looked different, slightly spooked. So I said to him, when I prayed, did you experience something? And he said, yes. He said, when you said those words, I experienced inside me this love. 
And I said to him, well, can I tell you what I think that is? He said, yeah. I said, I think that's God showing you that he loves you, showing you the love that you could have if you were his. Does that make sense? He went quiet and he just sort of nodded. We, we sent him away with a few books, and we didn't see him for three months. Three months later, he turned up at an adult alpha course with eight of his North Bridge friends. <laughs> we were a bit stunned. <laughs> so, this is... We're seeing how things work together here, aren't we? Signs of Wonders and Evangelism. It's distinct, but interconnected. Um, okay, fifth point. Um, about personal evangelism. Share your stories. When people actually are ready to listen um, and they do have questions, um, you know, what do you do? And they want, they, they, there's a sense they want to hear something from you now. What do you say? Well, I would say, share how Jesus has helped you overcome the ordinary problems of your life. Your worries. That time you were going for a job interview and you went, you were so anxious and then you prayed and God gave you peace. That time your relationship broke down and how God put you back together again. I would say, don't feel that it has to be your story of becoming a Christian. Actually, for a lot of people, they won't relate to that. It's very hard to tell a story of becoming a Christian in such a way that makes the other person feel included and think that could happen to me. We very easily tell our stories in such a way that people think, that's nice for you, but that could never happen to me because I didn't walk down that street and I didn't have that weird fuzzy feeling and I didn't shake in that meeting and I didn't hear that weird person and what you're saying to me doesn't make sense to me. Like, all of our stories of becoming a Christian usually contain things that just sound a bit odd or unrelatable and to experience them for yourself. So I say a better way to explain the gospel is talk about how the gospel relates to your everyday life problems. You know, connecting the cross of Jesus Christ and your worth you know, when you, you know, talk about that, people just lap it up. People just are drawn. So when we were doing this evangelism the other day on a street and we were talking to these girls, there was a, a lady with me who had been abused when she was their age. And it was, they had a very similar story to them. And she was just able to talk about how knowing that Jesus had died for her and that he paid for her on the cross gave her her worth. And you thought at this moment, you're kind of thinking, this is gold because this is exactly what they need to hear, but they're connecting it to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I would say, share your stories of how your faith helps you overcome the ordinary problems of life. And they don't always have to be really spectacular. People really relate to that stuff. Um, so this is kind of what we do with the who cares approach to mission by asking this question and then giving gospel presentations that relate to the issues that people really feel they're struggling with right now. And so let me give you one example. There was a Norwich church who did, a, did the who cares survey asking what hurts the most of all the people in their parent toddler group. It was actually all mums in this parent toddler group. And the overwhelming response was mother guilt. The guilt that these mums felt as parents, they felt like they were failing their children. That was the thing that right there overwhelmingly hurt the most, that group of women. So they got someone to come in who was a vibrant Christian to just share their story of how their faith helps them deal with the guilt they feel as a parent. And two families joined the church off the back of that. Really simple, but just presenting the gospel in a way that actually connects with the story of the people in the room. Six point, and point number six, keep the focus on Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. Jesus. 
In fact, the gospel is called the gospel of Christ um, in a number of places. In Romans 15, in 1 Corinthians 9, in 2 Corinthians 2, in 2 Corinthians 9, um, in 2 Corinthians 10, in Galatians 1, in Philippians 1, I could go on. The gospel is repeatedly called in the New Testament the gospel of Christ. It's about Jesus. So this means that getting people to think about who is Jesus and what has Jesus done are the ultimate centre points of all evangelistic conversation. And you want to move the gravity there as quickly as you can. Take people quickly to Jesus and get them talking about him. Um, There are plenty of dead-end conversations that can really be a bit of a distraction and you can feel like you haven't really got anywhere because you haven't taken them to the person of Jesus. That's where evangelism centres. So let me give you some examples of how you can quickly take someone from their question to the person of Jesus. Okay, number one, someone says, how do we know that God exists? My response would be, well, the ultimate evidence that God exists is that Jesus Christ claimed to be God, come down to earth, and he rose again to prove it. And there's all kinds of evidence that Jesus really rose from the dead. That's the ultimate proof that God exists. So you get them straight to the central question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Who is Jesus? From, I I don't know if there's a God. Let me give you another example. They want to talk about creation and evolution. I would say the evidence for Christianity that Christianity offers us is not really scientific evidence. It's historical evidence, more like the evidence that you will put before a jury. And all the evidence that Christianity offers points towards this claim that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So again, you get them straight from, because the question of science evolution is really, is it factually true? And like the Bible just, just doesn't present us with an argument for for six-day creation, it doesn't provide us with evidence for that. It talks, it takes us to the person of Jesus. So um, that's what I would say. Morality. Someone's got a problem with some kind of moral issue to do with Christianity. This comes up a lot. How do you get them to Jesus? Well, I would say, it's a bit of a Tim Keller answer, every culture finds some parts of Christianity attractive and other parts repellent. I might give some examples of what Muslim cultures love about Christianity and what Western cultures love about Christianity and what they don't love about it. And then I would say, well, the first question that we all need to ask is not, do I like Christian morals? But is Jesus Christ the Son of God? Because if he isn't, then who cares about what the Bible says about morality? That's the question that we need to answer first. What about suffering? Someone raises the problem of suffering. How do you get them to Jesus from the problem of suffering? Not too, it's not too hard, because the ultimate response that Christianity offers to the problem of suffering is not an argument, but a person. Christianity says that God has lived among us and suffered for us on the cross. Christianity then gives us the answer that we need rather than the answer that we want. It doesn't tell us, why did this happen to me? But it does prove beyond all question that no matter what you're going through, that God still loves you and that he cares for you. Just look at the cross where Jesus died. Sometimes people just say it's not even that relevant or that important. I mean, sometimes I do this just to get them to think. It's great with young people. Um, I ask them, you know, what year were they born in? And they say, well, I was born in 1991. I say, so that's 1,991 years from what? 
animals, and a lot of them don't even know. So do you not know? So it's 1,991 years since Jesus. And they go, oh. I said, so do you realise that over half the world, half the world's population sets their dates by the birth of Jesus Christ? Don't you think it's worth giving a bit of an attention to this person that we all set our dates by, that we're referencing all the time? Don't you think it's worth at least finding out? So there we are, just a few examples to you of how do you get people from their questions to the centre point of evangelism, which is who is Jesus and what's he done? And then point number seven is this, invite, invite people around you without fear. Do you know that it's polite to invite people to things? It's friendly. It's not our place to assume that people don't want to be invited to things until they say so. You know, if someone says to you, I don't want to come to any activities at your church, then you have a free pass. You don't have to invite that person again. But until they actually say that they don't want to come to anything that your church runs, I think you should carry on. Let me give you a few examples. There was a guy that was in my halls at university called James, and I got quite quickly people got to know that I was a Christian in my halls because I had all these Christian books on the shelf. And he came into my room and he saw these books and he looked a bit awkward and we had this really awkward conversation where it felt like he was not comfortable having a conversation about Christianity. And I thought, well, I'm going to be really evangelistically sensitive right now and I'm not going to invite him to stuff because he clearly feels really uncomfortable with me bringing up the subject of Christianity. So I invited everyone else in my hall, except him, to Christian things like the carol service and church and other events. Well, two years later, he became a Christian through someone else. And then he sat down with me and he said, Rob, I just want you to know that I felt really left out when you invited everyone else in the hall to come to Christian stuff. I would have really wanted to come. And I was like, oh... Right. Um, when I first started leading the church in Attleborough, I would I, I started just knocking on doors and chatting to people and just saying who I was and that the church was here for them. And one time I knocked on a door and there was a lady who opened the door called Angela and she burst into tears when I explained who we were. She said, come in. She said, two weeks ago I lost my husband. She told me the really sad story and how grieving she was. And I offered to pray with her and I shared the gospel with her and I invited her to some stuff and we actually, we, we found someone in our church that could practically help her by doing some of the things that her husband used to do but you know what after that encounter I just felt really bad and this thought came into my mind Rob that was too much too soon you were really insensitive like you basically took a vulnerable woman who was grieving and you used that as an opportunity to tell her about Jesus Christ that was bad and I actually for a period of time felt really quite embarrassed, kind of bad about it all, and then three years later she turned up at one of our alphas, and I said, Angela, you're here, why are you here? She said, well because of you, I'll never forget the day that you came around my house and you prayed for me and you told me all about this stuff, and I knew I wasn't ready to come just then, but now I am. So I say, invite the people around you without fear. It's not our place to write people off. And I think so often 
the enemy wants us to feel timid, shy, like we're being really insensitive when a lot of the time we're not at all. So, there we are. Those are seven principles for personal evangelism. Finally, what are some of the opportunities of the modern age? Well, I'm going to just give you, I'm going to finish and give you five. Number one, there remains interest in the person of Jesus Christ. People may have not had a good experience of the church um, or a very good impression of the church from what they read, but there is still something attractive, intriguing, mysterious, unknown about the person of Jesus. There may be like a lot of mud that's thrown at the church, but it's hard to find mud that sticks on the person of Jesus. It's hard to find a group of people that just really, really are negative about Jesus. A lot of the criticism they focus on the church, not on the person of Jesus Christ. So start with him. I mean, that is what the gospel is about. It's not the gospel of the church. It's the gospel of Christ. It's about him. He's the center point. The church is part of it. So that's one of our opportunities. People, that the interest, the fascination, the power, the marvel of the person of Jesus. Second um, opportunity that we have is the attractive nature of the community that the gospel brings. Um, churches have been demonstrated to be the most social, diverse social setting in the UK, tied with football stadiums. And it amazes me how many people who join our church who are unbelievers are stunned by the relational warmth, even when I think it's fairly mediocre. Because for so many people, what we offer is dramatically different to what they experience in their lives. Like, there are so many people that are just are not used to being listened to. So to actually meet somebody who asks them questions about themselves and listen. I mean, you've probably noticed this. You know, there are some people that just don't listen, and you can ask them 20 questions, and they won't ask you a question back. And a lot of people have that experience all the time. They've never met somebody who actually sits them down, looks them in the eye, and says, how are you? Tell me about this. What do you do? There's something attractive about the gospel, the community that the gospel brings. Um, and I, you know, so many of the comments about Alpha and why Alpha works as a, it remains a fruitful evangelistic model is because it creates community and it exposes people to fellowship and community and it's often what keeps the people coming. You know, one person on our, on our recent Alpha feedback form said, I came for the talks but I stayed for the people. So it was the attractiveness of the community that plugged them in and meant that they stayed to hear the gospel time after time. Third opportunity of the modern age is the willingness that people have to explore the Bible with you one-to-one. Some of you may not know this, but there has been a surprising renaissance in recent years of one-to-one evangelistic Bible studies. I guess it makes sense. People don't nowadays naturally trust institutions, but, and they can even now be a little bit more reluctant to just attend an event when they don't really know anyone, but they're surprisingly open to the offer with somebody they know who looks them in the eye and says, would you like to study the Bible with me? It's a surprising number of people will say yes to that. In our church, we trialed this, because I read someone say about it, and I thought, well, is that true? We've got to put it to the test. So me and two other people in the church, we said, right, we're going to, do, we're going to offer one-to-one Bible studies to people that we know who aren't Christians. We are seven people. Do you want to know how many of them said yes? Seven. And we thought, oh, 
That's 100% success rate. And, we, and they're simple, it's organic, you can, it's flexible, you meet people at any time, and there's all these studies that are produced now. There's a good one called, I mean, I'm doing this with a group of people um, on Sunday. We've got a group of men. We just invited all the men in our church who, well, all the men that we knew who were either non-Christians but coming with their Christian spouse, or all the men who were Christians but disconnected from church that we knew, and we worked out that we had about 20. So we, 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 we asked all those 20 men to come to a group. So it wasn't a personal one-to-one, it was a group. And so we've got a group called Beer and Bible, where we drink beer and we discuss the Bible. And we use materials like um, The World We All Want by Tim Chester. It's a really good um, resource. UCCF have produced these ones for students called Uncover Luke and Uncover John. But they um, have produced church versions that are just a little bit less studenty. Um, and there's something called the word to word, I think, that's just really simple. Um, yeah. So people are open to the ask, would you like to study the Bible with me? It's a great opportunity. And often that can lay the foundation for somebody then being willing to do something that's maybe a step up, like an Alpha course or a Christian Explore course or whatever your church does. Number four, um, here's the other opportunity. People are less equipped to deal with suffering and Christianity offers unique resources to deal with suffering. People in this modern age, the people who are fed Western secularism, which everyone is sort of force-fed these days, um, are far more easily shattered by grief and suffering. They just don't have the resources, the way of thinking to process um, grief. I'm sure most of you have probably observed this with your friends, that people we just in this modern age in the UK, generally speaking, just don't have the resilience to cope with suffering like people did even 100 years ago. If you read, like, I mean, I, I studied history, if you, like, read old people's diaries and biographies, it's like, whoa, people thought in a really different way to most of the people that I talk and ask how they are now. It's really weird. And Christianity has unique resources to help people. It has a lot to say on the subject of suffering. And it offers people a hope that suffering can't take away. And that's almost like the unique thing of Christianity compared to Western secularism. All the hope that Western secularism can offer people can be taken away tomorrow just by something bad happening to you. But Christianity offers us a hope that nothing can take away. And this is why we found that the Who Cares model for evangelism works well, where we ask people this question, what hurts you the most? And then our, our opening gospel presentation is basically saying, do you want to hear what Jesus says about the subject that you've written on your card? And then we invite them and put on something or share with them the hope of the gospel on the issue of how they're, on the problem of the, of the, that they're experiencing the most pain on. That's highly relevant to people. People have got an intrigue level about the things that hurt them the most. You know, if something really hurts you, your intrigue level about what someone has to say about how you can help, how, how, how you can get help with it is going to be very high. Um, then the fifth opportunity that we have in the modern age is that there are less de-churched people. Most people don't have a negative experience of church anymore. They just have no experience of church. They might have a negative impression of church, but that, that is altogether a different problem to deal with, and it's, it's actually easier to deal with than a negative experience of church. Um, um, and Sandy Miller basically describes this as it's a bit like skiing on fresh snow. Like you haven't got to clear away 
negative experiences of the church and say this is true Christianity, you've, you may have to clear away negative impressions, but actually not everyone has a negative impression of, impression of Christianity, they just have no impression, just not really interested. So it's like seeing on fresh snow, you've, you've got something new to say. So there we are, that is nine observations about evangelism in the book of Acts, seven principles for everyday evangelism, and five unique opportunities that I would say we have in the modern age. We've got time for two questions. Has anyone got a question? Yes, maybe. Very practical. What was the last um, Bible study? The work to. The world we all want by Tim Chester. It's cool because it starts with heaven, and then goes the new world and the new creation. Um, this you were you were next, sir. Do you find that? majority of people who are non-Christians have a very superficial view of what they believe in. In other words, they tend to sort of respond to sound bites, which are within the sort of public genre, so to speak, and then as soon as you start getting to look at things in depth, then they begin, it begins to sort of disintegrate that they actually don't believe in what they're um, So yeah, I'll just say the question for the tape. So the question was, do, do I find that people nowadays have quite a superficial set of beliefs that based on sound bites that when they dig into it, it sort of crumbles? The answer is yes. That is extremely common. I mean, it always amazes me how quickly people become Christians when you put them on something like an alpha course. You know, something by week, week three, they've completely stopped believing everything they've ever believed for, and then by, you know, you know, we say sometimes it takes a long time, but it often doesn't take a long time for people to realize that what they believe is wrong, or just doesn't have a basis. Well, we have got time for one more question. There's a chap over there. Yes, you. Sorry. Um, I had an evangelistic episode with a, um, a Buddhist. And he had everything, he had joy, he had laughter, he had peace, he had everything. He made my belief, uh, you know, another void. And I refused to have that, so it got a bit heated. How do, uh, do you get out of a situation like that so it's not so heated, so it's more gentle? I think it's, 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 you've got, we've got to really work hard on time and set, you know, and, 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 and getting him to, and really listening to people from other faiths particularly, because they often have a more thought through, they're not the typical kind of Western secular person. So I think for them, it's, it's kind of more of a journey to get to a place where they're really, like if you critique what they believe, that's very adversarial. So it's trying to establish an ongoing relationship where you can listen to each other together is what you want. You know, so it's more like, I'd love to know more about what you believe. Yeah. Could we just chat for coffee like, about this? You know, like, if you can get to that level of relationship with someone, that's kind of the idea in that situation. Sometimes then you want to do compare and contrast without saying that yours is better, just saying how it's different. Yeah. That's different than saying yours is bad yeah. and not good. Yeah. Um, I, I guess like one of the differences that you would hope to get to eventually with Buddhism is that this is an idea in Buddhism that's often about disassociation from things, like cutting off from things. Christianity doesn't say that that's, the, that's not really the answer in, in the Bible, but I wouldn't go there very quickly. Oh, we've got books there. Oh, okay, so it's not too bad. Cool, all right, well, we're gonna, do, we're gonna finish now. I'm just gonna pray. Father God, we thank you for um, this session together, and we just wanna pray that all the seeds that have been sown will be plopped find good soil and good roots in us, and that, Lord, out of this, time that we've had together, many more people would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, many more people would come to know him, 
and that your kingdom would advance in all the world. Amen. Amen.